Today I want to talk to you about the power of your testimony and the title of today's message is this is my story and we're going to be looking at the power of your testimony because that is what John chapter 9 was about. Most of you have heard my testimony. Most of you knew that I grew up in a in a lifestyle of sin all around me, drugs, alcohol, all kind parties, all kinds of stuff. Um, I started carrying that into my adult uh, life until my daughter was born and I gave my heart to Jesus. And after I accepted Christ, I found that I wanted to tell everybody about it. I was, pro I was one of those new believers that was probably the most annoying person on the planet, just wanted everybody to know about Jesus. And many of my friends were immediately alienated because of my zeal in Jesus. I just wanted to tell people about it. I wanted to um, get them saved. I wanted to bring them into Jesus. And they didn't know what to do with me. I mean, most of them were backslidden Lutherans. They didn't have any idea of what a faith in Jesus looked like. My family, same way, didn't have any idea about um, what it really meant to follow after Jesus. And what I learned was that most often when we come to faith in Jesus, the first hardships and the first persecutions that we uh, get into usually come from those closest to us. In this case, my whole family thought I went nuts. My mom thought it was just some weird phase I was going through being a first-time parent, that I, I just thought I had to get everything right for my daughter to grow up in a good home. My brother wouldn't even talk to me. My brother is one of the ones that I would party with a lot. My grandparents actually held like an intervention with me in my boyhood home the night that Tammy and I got married. My, my, my grandma and my grandpa were standing there in the room. I'm sitting there on my bed. And they're trying to tell me that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the one I'm supposed to worship and, and not whatever kooky religion I'm involved with uh, right now. And I, I messed with them a little bit and I said, you mean Pastor Nelson Clare isn't Jesus? And they, they, didn't, they didn't react well to that, but <laughs> I was just me messing with them. But they were trying, they thought I had gotten into some really weird thing with that. And everybody who was closest to me tried to talk me out of my newfound faith. And I remember in those days, in one sense, I was kind of lonely. I lost all of my old friends. Nobody wanted to talk to me anymore. They all wanted to go out drinking. They all wanted to go out and do all these kind of things. And, and none of them would really call me or want to talk to me anymore. But what helped me was that I had such a fire for God, such a hunger for His Word. I would sit there and read chapters of the Bible at night and just want to read it and go over it and memorize it and pray and, and listen to worship music. Like my whole life changed. And as we watch the video portraying the events of John chapter 9, we see that the main character in this section of scripture is not actually Jesus. Jesus doesn't appear very long in the scripture. It's actually the man that Jesus heals. And the man born blind is the subject of John chapter 9. And he's going through the same thing that many of us will go through after we turn our lives over to Christ. And that is, our testimony about Jesus is going to get challenged. And that's a subject that we're going to explore today. And what I want us to walk away with today is that your testimony about how God has saved you changed you or wants to use you is the most valuable thing you have in this life. It is the one thing that you need to hang on to that will form and shape exactly how God can use you in this life. It is the most valuable thing you own. It's your story. 
about the greatness of God in your life. And that's why I named this, the title of today's message, This is My Story. And my story, I want my story to be about the greatness of God. In fact, your testimony should reflect that no matter what happens in your life, you reflect His goodness, you reflect His power, you reflect His presence in your life, no matter what is going on, even if you're having hardships, even if you're, having, you're being persecuted, even if you're sick, or even if there's a tragedy going on in your life, your life should reflect the goodness of God in your life. And that brings us to the first thing that I want to address this morning from John chapter 9 is why God allows hardship. What is the purpose of all of this hardship, whether it be those tragedies, those persecutions, those, you know, whatever it is that, that, that wants to take our focus off God, why does God allow this? This last week I got an email from Lee Henschel. Lee Henschel is a publisher of Blair Free Press who told me that the pastor that was supposed to do the article, um, he does an article uh, once a week that little corner in the newspaper, uh, 250 to 300 words, on something that is Christian or religion-based. And the pastor that was supposed to do it was unable to do it, so he asked me to do it. And as I, was, I got that email as I was preparing this sermon, so I did a little thing on hardship. And as I told him, I said, we, trying to, to condense why God allows hardship into our lives into 250 to 300 words is just about impossible. People have literally written 100 pages of Ph.D. dissertation on this subject. But be encouraged, I did not do that this morning. You're, you're going to get the, the very brief part of it. But I do want to show it to you. Because regarding suffering, hardship, or persecution, how it, re, it relates to, and how it relates to the idea that God loves and cares for us, and is personally lead us, leading us through this life, it reflects and, and it affects our personal testimony and how we show it to the world. And so I want, I want to show us why God allows some hardship and how it affects our testimony. The first thing is, is that hardship softens us. In Zechariah 7.12, Zechariah is speaking to a rebellious people when he said, they made their hearts as hard as flint, and would not listen to the law or the words of the Lord Almighty he sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Now there's a great deception that the enemy puts into our lives. And it's one of his greatest deceptions before we know Christ or even after we come into salvation. And that deception is we need to be strong in our own strength. I mean, we talk about like a man who is strong in his own strength. What's some of the, the names we can come up with? I think of one right off the top of my head because it reminds me of my grandpa Oscar. John Wayne. Man and strong in his own strength. You know, he was six, I think he was six foot five. Big, big guy. I remember watching a video this week of him teaching a kid how to swim. He, he's teaching a kid how to fish and he found out he didn't know how to swim. So he picked him up, threw him in the middle of the lake and said, Swim. That's a rough, tumble guy. You either learn how to swim or you're going to sink. That's the, the idea of the world's idea of how we should be strong in our own strength and be able to figure it out for ourselves. And it's very obvious in our culture. We all revere the hero that through an act of extraordinary courage saves a day. We admire the person that goes through incredible odds and still fulfills their dream. 
We build statues to people who face down the giants in their culture or before the world, and they overcome despite incredible persecution and suffering. These are the people that are able to accomplish the impossible because they fortify their minds and their bodies and their souls around this singular idea or goal, and then they go all out to see it gets done. And I'm not necessarily saying that's always a bad thing. It's a bad thing when we think we did it all in our own strength. That's when it becomes bad because it becomes this source of pride for us and it hardens us from giving God the glory that He deserves. And some of the hardest people in the world are those who are self-made. Some of the most difficult people to tell about Jesus are the very hard workers who have, have worked extremely hard and become successful in life. I've done door-to-door witnessing in every part of a city that I can think of. I've been in the lowest part of the ghetto, and I've been in the rich area with the mansions. And what I've found is that you will never have as many doors slammed in your face or even receive death threats as you will on the rich side of town. They are not nice. They are not anything. It's get off my porch. The people will threaten you. And I remember a person I was with once, a guy grabbed him, and he was going to punch him. For just wanting to say you need Jesus. That's all he said. And it was on the rich side of town. American culture is predicated on the idea of being a tough rebel that throws a fist in the air to declare our independence from anything other than ourselves. And that's why when God is finally able to get a hold of us, he has to take away all that hardness, that hardness of self-reliance, all that rebellion and break it away from us. He has to expose and soften our spirits so that we're able to be shaped into the image of Christ that He has for each one of us. And that leads us to the next point of why God allows hardship in our lives. And hardship serves to mold us. Now many of us, when we've come to Christ, we came to Christ during a church service or a a revival or a large meeting of some type. An evangelist or a pastor gave a sermon, the Spirit was moving, salvation call came out, the Holy Spirit convicted us, and we ended up at an altar kneeling and asking for God's forgiveness. At that point, our sins were forgiven, we died to our own life, and we became that new creature. And we have a promise from God's Word of what happens during that time. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's in Ezekiel 36:26. One of the most profound changes in the new believer will be an instant change in personality and priorities. Have you ever seen a person get radically saved, turn away from a hugely sinful lifestyle, get radically saved and it's like they're a new person? Well, that's because they are. I've seen it over and over again. And you may ask why God has to do that. Why can't we just be the new and improved version of our old selves? Why can't God just kind of clean up the outside a little bit so it looks a little nicer and just leave us alone on the inside? Well, I would point you to the parable that Jesus tells us about pouring new wine into old wineskins. In Bible times, you you had to use a new wineskin to store and transport wine. And people who, who... who deal with wine and grapes, they know this. What happens is the wine ferments and as the gas released, it would stretch the wine skin. It was usually made out of some type of animal hide, leather. And once it would stretch out, and once you used it, it would be nice and stretched out for you. But if you put some more wine in there, 
it would stretch it to the point of being burst after it fermented for a while. And the same thing can be said about why God gives us and molds us a new heart when we come into salvation. We need that newness to contain that fresh presence of God within us. The old heart has nothing to do with God. Nothing. The old heart would be, if you tried to like put the Holy Spirit into an old heart, it would squirm like a kid about to get a shot at the doctor's office. It just wants to run away from anything having to do with the presence of God. Sometimes it still affects us after we get saved. I've been in church services where the Holy Spirit starts to move in a very particular way, and you will see some senior saints, people who have been saved for years and years and years, get up and leave. And I always thought it was the weirdest thing. You'd have all of these people who just got saved out of just horrible, sinful lifestyle. They'd be up at the altar praying. They'd be worshiping God. And some of these senior saints would be like running out the door. And what I figured out finally is that the Holy Spirit is moving in such a way that He's touching one of those old parts of their heart. And they don't want to be stretched so they get out. It's a very interesting thing to watch as that happens. Interestingly, it's also when pastors get the most angry emails from the senior saints is when that happens. God wants us to have new hearts. Amen? He wants us to have a new heart. He wants us to have a heart that is renewed in Him, but wants to be passionate for Him. And that's why He allows the fires and persecution and hardship to strip away everything that is not of Him. So that the Holy Spirit has a clean temple to operate in and operate through. And that brings us to the next part of hardship, is that hardship separates us. The idea of separation in our 21st century church is almost a bad word now. One of the reasons that, historically speaking, people who attended a more holiness-centered church often practiced separation they practice, but they practice the separation at the expense of never actually being around people who are still in sin. And that was, that was unfortunate. But today we've gone to the opposite extreme. The church is so close to the world in behavior and belief that we're virtually indistinguishable from it. The Apostle Paul gives us an excellent analogy on how to view what separation is supposed to be and why we practice it in regard to things that are sinful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. A few years ago, there was a guy I would occasionally work with who had a mild heart attack. The doctors went in, they put the stents in his coronary arteries, he's back to work in a few weeks. I, was, I got to work with him his first shift back. And when it came time to stop somewhere to lunch, he was the, it was his turn to drive, so he drove. He drives us over to Dickie's Barbecue Shack. And I'm like, you just had a heart attack, man. Dickie's heart, I mean, Dickie's is awesome food. But you can have a heart attack from just breathing the air. There's so much fat in it. I mean, you walk into the place, it's like chest pain. It's just, for, just from breathing and, and smelling what's on there. 
I said, you, you just had a heart attack. We can't eat at Dickie's. You're going to cause your stent to fail. You know, you're a paramedic for crying out loud. You know if you get too much fat in your blood right now, it causes that stent to, to corrode and it'll separate. It'll, it's just bad. You don't want to do that. You see, he didn't want to adjust his life to make sure he stayed healthy. But that is the proper way to look at biblical separation. There are many things in this life that are not good for us spiritually. They're simply not healthy. Now, while there are some things that the Bible expressly forbids us to do, and we should avoid that um, undoubtedly and without, without any equivocation, we should avoid those things that the Bible expressly forbids us to do, those Ten Commandment kind of sins. There are some gray area things that where we can either exercise liberty or we can exercise restraint. And it may look a little different for every believer, but what our overriding goal is should be to glorify God with every portion of our lives. That is our goal, is saying, Jesus, whatever I want to do, whatever I feel this liberty to do, I want you to bless it and I want it to glorify you. That's the key to living a life that pleases God. And it's a key to living a life that He can use to make a kingdom impact on this world. What we don't want to use separation for is a hammer to make people feel as they are not as spiritual as we are. And that's been the unfortunate consequence of the misuse of the idea of separation. And the last reason that God allows hardship, pain, or suffering, persecution in our lives is that Hardship hardens us. And the kind of hardening that I'm talking about is not the same kind of hardening that keeps a person in a sinful condition. The hardening that we're talking about here brings to the mind a potter finishing a work of clay and then sliding it into the kiln to harden it, to prepare it for the master's use. Because a properly formed lump of clay is useless unless it goes through the fire. It would be like if you take a you, you, you have some Play-Doh and you make a, a cup out of it and then go pour some water and then try to drink from it. It would be kind of gross, wouldn't it? That's the kind of hardening that we're talking about. Same thing can be said about a blacksmith who's heated the metal until it glows. And then he pounds it and pounds it and then he cools it. And then he heats it again and he pounds it and he pounds it and he cools it. The more he does that and the, the exact ways that he does that, creates a hardening into this metal that it will withstand the battle that it has to go through. God will, use, will take us through these kind of situations throughout our entire lives. There will be times when we're in the fire and there will be times when we're in the water. His blacksmith hammer is always pounding us into a perfect representation of what it means to be in Christ. And this hardness is not the same as the one that was born out of rebellion, as we said. It's a firmness of conviction that no matter what, we'll stand firm for what we believe. Amen. That's a brief summary of why God allows suffering in our lives. It's to cause our testimony to endure the test of time. However, you find your testimony will often come under attack especially by those closest to you. And that brings us to our second point about our testimony. Is that people will doubt. In John chapter 9, we see the reaction of the religious crowd of Jesus' day to the miracle of sight given the blind man. Disbelief. They didn't want to believe it. In their line of thinking, Jesus couldn't have possibly healed this man. He's not involved with us. 
Don't you understand that if God's going to move, if He's going to perform a miracle, it's going to be through our movement, it's going to be through our denomination, it's going to be through us as the high priests, it's going to come through us? Don't you, don't you understand that? After all, those people over there, that Jesus guy, he's not a true follower of God like us. He's not a college and cemetery educated person. There is no possible way that God could use him. This has to either be fake or it's of the devil. That's the only two options that the Pharisees could see. And that's very true in life. Often the most critical people you'll find will be people in the church. And those who are critical in the church are often the people who have gone the longest without a legitimate and honest experience with God. They've grown callous in their own hearts. These are the people who have forgotten, who have never actually experienced what it means to be forgiven. They'd rather cling to a form of religion but deny its power. There are some of the most dangerous people in any church because they think that since God isn't doing a new thing in their life, then he can't possibly do a new thing in somebody else's. Last week we visited our old church for our, for our former pastor's funeral. And I got to talk with several of the people who told me that the new pastor, who's the son of the old pastor, is facing a lot of criticism because of his focus for wanting to minister to people that society has forgotten. These people that were complaining didn't want their nice, pretty, clean church invaded by these rotten, smelly sinners because they were going after the homeless people in Kenosha. But I want to tell you something about the day we're living in. You know, the day we're living in was prophesied by Jesus. Many of his parables are actually prophecies. And in Luke 14, he gave a prophecy about how the end days were going to be. For the sake of time, I'm just going to quickly paraphrase it a little bit. Jesus compares himself to a king. The time frame alluded to the parable is right before the rapture. Jesus invites everybody to his wedding banquet. When he says everybody's inviting the entire church. However, he finds that the rich want to enjoy their riches more than they want to enjoy the king, so they refuse to come. Others have possession that they enjoy more than the king, so they refuse to come. Others have relationships that are more important than coming to the king's table, so they refuse to come. The king grows angry and he tells his servants, fine, go to the gutter. Bring the prostitute. Bring the homosexual. Bring the person with the tattoos and the weird piercings. Bring the person who has been divorced. Bring those, those other people that the church for years is wanting to throw out. Bring them in so my, my house is full. And the lessons for us this morning is that the last day's church will not be full of respectable, middle-class white families. It's going to be the broken. It's going to be the lame. It's going to be the sick that God changes into glorious examples of His power in people's lives. And I say amen to that. Because these people will have authentic testimonies to show the world the glory of God. And they will bring many people into His kingdom. And I don't want myself and I don't want our church to be so dry, stale, or set in our old ways that we can't be used to do this new thing that God is getting ready to do. Because the trumpet is about to sound, people. And the dead is going to be raised and then He's going to call us up. 
And I want to be on the forefront of those reaching everyone we can for Jesus. All this is leading to the point of our testimony. The reason that we want to maintain it. And that is the reward that we can look forward to receiving not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that is, you get to see Jesus. You see, at the end of the story in John chapter 9, the man comes face to face with Jesus. Up to this point, he hasn't seen the person who's healed him yet. He has no idea what he looks like. He probably didn't even really hear a lot of the words he spoke through the, the noise of the crowd. Up to this point, he only knows him by a name. Up to this point, he's only seen darkly as through a mirror, just as we have. But now, he gets to see face to face. So I would ask you this morning, do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see Him on this side of eternity? Do you want to see Jesus' work change lives, heal the brokenhearted, redeem the worst of sinners, and see Him change lives? Do you want your testimony about Jesus to be one that glorifies Him? Because your testimony is all about the legacy. It's all about what you have done with that dash between the year you were born and the year you die. That is that dash is your testimony. What are you going to do with your dash? Do you want to use it to turn others to Jesus and bring the sinners out of darkness and into light? If that's you, I would ask you to stand today. We're going to finish in a time of prayer.